Welcome to the UCM. We're your tour guides, Zan Peters and Joe Semino. And we're going to be taking you through our humble little museum's collection. The exhibits may or may not be real, but the stories sure are. Enjoy your visit today at the Uncanny County Museum. I've discovered something that uh, my neighbor is actually a harpist. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, it's really beautiful. Like I've been and and she practices at night. So it's like I'm laying Uh down in bed and like there's uh, just this this incredibly tranquil ethereal music playing through the wall. It's like the soundtrack to your life. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess like, you know, it, it it could be weird, like, waking up to that, too, you know, if you're, like, suddenly uh, there's a soundtrack. Like, what, in the movie of your life, what do you think would be about to happen if suddenly uh, there is, um, you know, completely disembodied heart music? Um, God, so many different things. You're either having a dream sequence, or mm-hmm. it would be, like a very melancholic moment i feel like right it's right something... i guess it depends on the type of movie too like it's true but I, I i've been feeling a little bad because you know obviously i practice music as well but the only thing i can kind of return with is like you know uh like i've been practicing uh white room by cream ah, which okay is not as soothing of a song you know to kind of play in right. response so I, I have no idea how that's being received in my building. Mm, maybe it's going to be like a battle of the bands or it could be like a collaboration. Yeah. You never know. Yeah. yeah. That's one way to think of it. I yeah. mean, speaking of collaborations, um, there's who's who's that over there down this oh. this hall of taxidermy? There seems to be uh, another uh, an, another uh, figure here in the uh, Uncanny County Museum. Who's that over there? Oh, Zan, good to see you. Um, I am Christian oh. Flores. Yes. Hi, welcome, Hi. Christian. Welcome. Yeah, yeah, we are uh, super glad to have you here on behalf of the Uncanny County Museum. You know, we love having guests, and uh, we love having people on that you know know a lot more than <laughs> us. Even though you know we. We we talk very authoritatively for people that you know mildly research things. <laughs> typically, yeah, yeah, it's accurate. The, uh, uh-huh. A real uh, Google, real Google scholar. That's... <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah. For some reason, nobody is like responding to that when I put that under my education right. on my resume. It's like I've I've been down some Wikipedia holes. Right. I watched enough YouTube essays to know a thing or two about something. Oh, yeah, no. I mean, like, honestly, I may almost have an MFA in fine art, but I feel like because I've watched enough Lindsay Ellis and JCS Mm. videos, I also have, like, this very deep understanding of the human psyche. It's true, it's true. 
And right. Zan will know because I, you know, have seen enough of uh, the show Vikings as well as The Last Kingdom. <laughs> I am the resident Viking scholar here because yeah. I just absorb all information from all right. over about that. So it's but it's only it about Vikings. Only about Vikings. It's my niche. It's my one niche knowledgeable topic that I I don't know why, but mm-hmm. we'll find out eventually, I guess. Yeah. You're like I know I know what the world serpent is and I know what the uh, Fenrir is, uh, dog and snake. Yeah, that's all you gotta know, honestly. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But yeah, Christian, so uh you actually have a connection to a uh former uh guest here at the UCM. Uh if you'd uh, like to uh talk a little bit about that and name drop that because uh t- tell us a bit about what you do. Yeah, so my name is Christian Flores. I'm a wildlife educator, psychomer, and conservationist. Uh, basically put, I talk animals, ancient life, mm. and what we can do to preserve species on our planet. Uh, my greatest interest being ecology and animal behavior. Uh, I've also had some opportunities to write uh, for a well-established dinosaur comics for a few of his uh, <laughs> Did You Know series. Mi- Mr. You mean Mr. Comics? Mr. Comics, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so that's basically what I do. Um, To me, it's basically teaching others about life on our planet, past and present. Um, And I think there's a lot to learn in terms of species that we've lost and species that we would hope uh, don't meet the same fate. So we can get a little bit more into that throughout the episode. Cool. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I mean, that's... this is a thing that uh we've obviously talked about a lot you know as far as like you know animals going extinct our relationship to animals uh going extinct but especially for sort of more recent conservation efforts there's certainly you know i think a lot of mixed emotions that people have when they you know enter into any space like a museum or a zoo and living or dead here are the bodies of um you know often quite rare animals i mean that really yeah. is the draw oftentimes of a museum or a zoo you know no matter what the you know uh uh charming animals that you know live all over the earth we don't go to the zoo to see the squirrels mm-hmm. and the pigeons you know we're there yeah. to see something that we would not normally encounter you know um you know as a floridian (laughs) i can just walk down the what just walk down the street and there's fish skeletons everywhere but if i want to see you know the skeleton of something a little more exotic right yeah i I gotta go i gotta go to a natural history museum so like um there's there's a lot of stuff like and, and potentially also kind of fraught stuff as well uh in 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 the act of viewing those animals and people you know can have a lot of can have a lot of misgivings about that and i'm really glad that we have you on to talk about that and just get into kind of the the nitty-gritty of what's going on why it's why it's important to educate people about animals and to bring them into the into proximity with them yeah and i'm happy to be here um yeah in terms of when you think of a museum collection and the specimens that are within them um, mm-hmm. I think it's important to kind of take a step back of how they were collected to begin mm-hmm. with. And with that being said, we have to think of the different time period and the different era that some of these specimens were collected first and foremost. Right, right. Yes. Um, when, we, when we think about, um, let's say, again, a taxidermy mount or a skeleton, 
the way that some of these animals were collected, whether it was the 1800s, early 1900s, is very different than how we would do it today. So You don't say. <laughs> well, going into, going into the details, um, yeah. when we find an animal, again, especially in these earlier times when it was the first of a species ever seen, normally the procedure would be to collect the as much evidence as possible, whether skins, uh, skins, hide, bone, skull, all the things that require an animal that is now no longer alive. Mm -hmm. um, that is definitely something to um, break through in that so a lot of specimens were taken or recovered by the animal, unfortunately, meeting its demise and losing its life. Um, now, with conservation... Some, some zebra, two zebras, like, looking at each other, it's like, is that, is that former President Theodore Roosevelt? <laughs> Well, yes, Theodore Roosevelt did happen to collect many specimens. Um, and, and I think one... a good amount of the uh, the the tax the mammal mounts in the uh, Museum of Natural History in New York. I believe a lot of them you could put a little you know plaque there. It's like courtesy of Teddy. <laughs> oh my god! Right, exactly. <laughs> uh, funny that you funny that you mentioned that. So again, as many of these old collections did go out into the field to collect. Uh, hide, mm -hmm. bone, skull, etc. Speaking of Roosevelt's, um, mm -hmm. there was one expedition in particular um, from the Field Museum of Natural History in Chicago where Theodore Roosevelt's uh, sons, uh, Theodore and Kermit, were actually sent on an expedition to Asia where they were given the task to come back with a panda specimen mm. and succeeded. Jeez. Wow. Imagine that cold-blooded you're like we need you to go out and hunt a panda like and that th this like th this is literally like disney villain like you know air airbud 13 level like you know plot. Right. It's like we we have to stop panda hunters like it's it sounds yeah like, that's literally a movie though it, that it, was that's the great panda adventure wait, i'm pretty is, sure that's what it's no, yes, it yeah, it's like it? I'm pretty sure that's what it's called, and I remember because it's about a boy and a panda, and then they have to stop the panda being hunted. Was it made in the 90s? Yeah, or the 2000s, probably the 2000s. Okay. To be yeah, fair, yeah. I mean that does sound like the plot of like an Ace Ventura movie. As yeah, well. it does exactly. Yeah, no, well, I mean also, yeah, it, it 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 sounds like almost a parody of like you know the 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 sons of uh of an American president have to go out and, you know, hunt, uh, right. What is now considered like the, the poster child right. animal of, you know, charismatic megafauna preservation, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, right. Like the, but, but yeah, no, I, I, I'm at least familiar enough with the history of like natural history specimen stuff, you know, the, in, in, an, in an era before, uh, a lot of places could even take care of some of these animals. It makes sense that, like, you know, the, uh, you know, our expedition has come back from Australia. They've sent us the most bizarre specimens, you know? They're like, you know, and, you know, Darwin is, like, having a seizure in the corner after seeing a platypus, uh, you know, skin <laughs> for the first time. Right. Exactly. Or you are this individual that went to Africa on the western mm -hmm. coast and see this shaggy furred creature eating vegetables and, and roots, and you think it's mm -hmm. ape-man creature, 
You then mm-hmm. go, you then go back to your colleagues and let them know. And of course, I always think of this old, old man with a monocle saying, "We're going to send you back to the Congo to retrieve evidence of this ape man you speak of." <laughs> <laughs> and come, come to find it's, the, it's, it's, it's like the, the the dad from Tarzan. Oh my god. <laughs> Oh no! That brings a darker turn. I actually read Tarzan of the Apes, and I will say it is it is much darker than that Ooh, Disney movie. Right? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean Edgar Rice Burroughs. You know, he had some he, he had he had some interesting uh, yeah. I- interesting uh, um, storylines that didn't make it in. <laughs> I mean, but but obviously the the storyline that everyone's wondering, which is why does Tarzan not have facial hair? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm able to grow a beard, and I feel quite blessed by that. Same. Mm. I am blessed that I live in an era that uh, allows me to shave my gross <laughs> uh, facial hair. Fair enough. I'm, I'm not. I, I. I do. I do not have the. Uh, I. I don't have good facial hair genetics, unfortunately. Mm. But. But yeah, no. Th- there is, you know, a troubling colonial history uh and and sort of aspect of resource extraction that plays into a lot of um the the history and the legacy of a lot of western Mm -hmm. science you know not not that you know they they have a monopoly on doing that there's plenty of unethical you know animal capture practices all over the world throughout time but you know when we think of the uh, the, the the canonized Western concept of a museum and and a zoo, there is you know that that history of guys in pith helmets with spectacular mustaches, <laughs> you know, just going out and uh, yeah, <laughs> and you know, and 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 shooting a bunch of animals, some of which are now extinct because uh, a lot of a lot of that action of collecting is rooted in just sort of the the prestige of having a diverse collection of animals right. that like that was the mark of a of a sophisticate that you're like look at my shell collection you know right right and i think the methods now have drastically changed for the better and mm-hmm. when we find a new species what we'll usually do is take pictures um mm-hmm draw blood samples and find ways to make sure the animal remains alive and safe mm-hmm. in the most humane ways possible. Um, but yes, obviously when we look back on the history of whether it's taxidermy or specimen collection, um, mm-hmm. it does have a particular past. Um, obviously it has allowed us to learn more into our right, modern yeah. world. Um, but we also think about animals alive today. And um, mm-hmm. I think it's important to note that whether it's a zoological institution, museum, et cetera, that there is much more we can learn um, with the animals that we have today. Um, Another thing important to note, um, thinking about the general public and what I do in teaching people about um, animals Mm -hmm. and life is that mortality is a form of reality. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I think that the general public very much has this disconnect to certain elements of nature. Yeah, Mm -hmm. And I think mortality is definitely one where we see this animal animals don't die they live forever and we they live uh patrol off into the sunset and they circle of life <laughs> but in reality animals get old like we do or animals fall to unfortunate circumstances that are uncontrollable such as diseases like cancer etc 
Um, but when an animal does pass, we have these processes necessary in order to give it a new life, in a sense, or give it purpose to where we can now allow these remains to be used for us as individuals and for generations to come to learn more about our biological world. Mm-hmm. Um, so when an animal does pass away, there is a process that, uh, as I mentioned, where um, the first is, well, you have an animal in front of you that is no longer alive. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, so some people may look at that as a little bit morbid, but it, again, it is part of that reality. Um, mm-hmm. From there, um, the process is to remove um, any excess materials, fur, um, muscle, etc. And before I keep going further, um, this is a process that is used again through zoological institutions today, museums, etc. As the part of cleaning the skeleton. When we think of bones, we normally think of them as these pearly white gems, these perfect bones. Mm -hmm. Um, But in order to get there, it can get a little bit messy, but that's part of the reality of it. Um, so what would mm-hmm. happen is these bones are then taken off any excess materials. Um, there is then the cleaning process um, for many zoos and museums that is by dermestid colony. So for those who don't know, a dermestid, it all starts with a dermestid beetle. Huh. And a dermestid beetle is a carnivorous beetle that eat flesh. And what we do is we have these bones that are then given to our very tiny workers, our very tiny employee and staff that we know (laughs) is a domestic beetle (laughs) that work round the clock in order to uh, take away any excess stuff that couldn't naturally be taken off um, normally by the skinning process. After Mm -hmm. which we then have a bone, but we're not done yet. Mm Mm-hmm. Because now, when you think, <laughs> again, um, when we think about bones, we think of them as pearly, white, and perfect. But in reality, bones um, are filled with lipids and filled with fats and can have this sort of off-color, yellowish to even orange tones to them. And because of which, we have to remove that because, one, it does make the bones look not what we picture them as pearly white. And also, uh, some of those lipids can have a little bit of a smell Mm. to them, which is not very Mm -hmm. pleasant, which I've experienced myself. Um, If anyone is wondering, um, I have some experiences with the zoological world, um, as well as some other uh, colleagues and friends of mine. Um, And this is public knowledge as well. It's nothing to, to be behind any doors. But again, we have this bone and we have to clean it. Right. And that Mm -hmm. process is called and that process is called degreasing where we use a chemical process, whether it's ammonia, acetone, et cetera, to remove those lipids out of the bones themselves. And Mm -hmm. funny enough, depending on the animal, its life history and the species that it is can take a series of months to even almost a year or more to remove all those fatty lipids out of the bones until you get a full museum skeleton. That's crazy. Wow. 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 I mean, this is such an interesting process. I'm also really fascinated though that of the use of beetles, of the specific beetle um to uh, to to aid in that process. It's not something I mm. well one I never knew this, so I'm already very fascinated. But also it's like it's not <laughs> right, something right, you right. think of when it's like a procedure of of you know how to deal with with the passing of an animal and then to preserve those um I guess for lack of a better word, material, but the act of having another being, another creature that's also helping in that process is very, it's very fascinating to me. 
Right, and they yeah. they certainly do uh, a great job because obviously when you're you know using a scalpel or et cetera to right. clean materials off, there's only so much you can get off. For sure, um, yeah. So, so these beetles actually do a really great job being able to get in sort of the nooks and crannies and places that you can't normally get to. Right, you know, with, right. Uh, any, any real mm-hmm. tool. Um, so these, we're using nature to help nature yeah. in cleaning this process. Um, mm-hmm. They also have a really great union. <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. absolutely yeah. Yeah. no exactly uh, that though it's nature it's it's using nature to then go about this process which i think is pretty fascinating and, and i'm sure one would come up with a different way to counter that but at the same time i think it's like it, it already starts to paint a different picture of what this process is like it's not just the you know old-fashioned and dare i say colonial version of this mm-hmm. too it's a bit of a more it's a different process that in, that involves more than just human hands. I'll say that. Right, right. And, and and sort of reflects, you know, what our our priorities are for um mm-hmm. for for collecting those specimens. Right. This is, you know, something for education, you know, cuz like if you're like well, we want a giraffe skeleton, you know, but <laughs> we don't need to go and kill a giraffe right. so that we can have that, you know, there's giraffes and zoos and those giraffes don't live forever exactly and, yeah you know you could see it as like kind of a cruel practicality but also there is like the the potential i i like this idea of them having you know this ongoing life of um benefiting the world mm-hmm. uh you know after uh after they've uh you know left after they've after they've departed um I I also you you had mentioned something uh a little earlier too about like the the size of the animals like for like a an extremely large animal like do you like how how do you even like find a container to like start degreasing something <laughs> that's like a, a like you know like an elephant or a whale Right. So obviously, like you said, a, a field mouse and a elephant are two completely different things. Mm. So how we contain and process it is going to be a little bit different. Um, again, the whole degreasing and cleaning process is pretty much the same. But again, as how we hold these animals, um, very, very large containers. Um, uh-huh. One situation, that, yes, a very one uh, situation that I know um, a museum had actually used an industrial dumpster to degrease and fit a whale skeleton oh my god Mm. interesting i mean that's that's the that's the thing about whales notoriously oily you know Mm. we used to have a whole industry just to get that still we'll never understand it personally (laughs) right and we noticed that and going back to the individual and species level we do notice that with different species whales in particular as animals that hold blubber they're holding fat Mm -hmm. inside their bodies and eat uh, fish and, Mm -hmm. and sea life they do have a lot of oil inside themselves. So mm-hmm. it does take much, much longer for these animals to decrease. Um, funny enough, again, on an individual level too, if we have, let's say, an animal that lived uh, with a very high fat diet, that mm-hmm. can actually also affect how long that animal may take to decrease versus an animal that oh, lived wow. a much healthier lifestyle. So <laughs> it really is interesting <laughs> when you think about it. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, it's... And and again, this this process, you know, I'm imagining with whales and stuff, often it's probably like a lot of nowadays it's probably beached specimens. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, if you go back about a century, I know uh, prior to his days as like a a, a you know a dinosaur world hun- dinosaur hunter world traveler extraordinaire, you know Roy Chapman Andrews just uh, hopped onto whaling vessels and asked them, you know, once they were done processing a whale, if he could go through the carcass for the bones because there there was a gap in the in the science of having complete whale skeletons hmm. uh, and knowing how to you know properly reconstruct them for museums you know and you know to see to see how it's evolved there's still you know obviously this need for material for research you know thankfully less of it is through whaling um now right um yeah but there's you know you you see that curiosity that has run through all of this through through kind of all time and a desire to understand and try to uh try try to like almost decode other animals yeah exactly and i think looking at being able to look at skeletons in a museum has also allowed us to figure out wait, is this another species of something or something mm-hmm. different, something that we that we, that we overlooked mm-hmm. um, because we didn't have any other material to have right in front of us? Mm-hmm. So there definitely is, um, it's a multifaceted um, experience of benefits that come from having these animals in order to have in collections and see um, mm-hmm. because we may look back and, and notice different data or different things that can help broaden again right. our, our understanding of species and the biological world as a whole. Um, mm-hmm. Zoos and in particular are very much to think because they do help this conservation process. You know, as a conservationist, a lot of people ask, at least me, what can I do for conservation? Mm-hmm. What can I do to support um, animals, whether in the wild or currently in human care? And AZA accredited zoos definitely fit that. Um, for those who may not know what an AZA accredited zoo is, an AZA accredited zoo is a zoo or aquarium that fits the highest level standards of animal care. Um, mm-hmm. And it's not just um, this person that kind of comes through with a clipboard because they get uh, AZA accredited zoos get assessed for accreditation every five years. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it's, and it's not as though some person just kind of walks through with a clipboard and says, check, check, check. Okay, you're AZA accredited. <laughs> it can be a week long process of assessing animal space, enclosures, enrichment, nutrition, um, financial records, medical records of how these animals are treated to the best possible standards uh, for their conservation, as well as um, contributions to science and et cetera. So AZA accredited zoos definitely are a big part. If you're looking to support conservation, that is definitely one way to go if you are going to visit mm-hmm. your own local um, AZA accredited zoo or aquarium. Interesting. Right, yeah. No, I mean that's that's extremely, you know, good to know. And I think I think there's I, I think zoos do really get a bad rap because mm-hmm. it's it's very kind of easy to just label them as animal prisons yeah. and there are there there are enough uh un- unfortunately there there's enough things uh you know what i'm assuming are unaccredited zoos a lot of private zoos that people can kind of point to and say that this is all bad this is all flat out immoral i mean do you get people that kind of confront you about that that like think you're running like some kind of tiger king level <laughs> uh you know beat me to it so uh, i was gonna bring it up as well know, 
<laughs> right, right. And I think that's I think that's an, a great example of a non-ACA accredited zoo. Now, it's a very extreme example, but it's a good example. Because yeah. when you look at it, um, actually, funny enough, I actually haven't watched Tiger King. Oh, but I know fine. I have at least seen, an, uh, seen enough to where giving, giving your lions and tigers um, leftover old meat and uh, frozen pizzas is not what an AZA credit zoo stands for. So. Hey, 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 hey. He gave, he gave <laughs> the left, he put the leftover meat on the pizza and fed that to humans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The the tigers at least just got the stri- the meat I guess that that came off the back of that uh, Walmart truck. Right. Hi there. My name is Colby White, and I'm one of the hosts from Force Football Facts, a podcast where my friend Zachary and I force our other friend Tyrell to give us insights into the game, even though he doesn't know anything about it. We use our humor to bring you weekly football news in a new way that takes fan opinions into account, while also helping new fans understand why we love this game so much. You can check us out on our website, forcefootballfacts.com, or wherever podcasts are available. Hope to see you soon. But yeah, <laughs> yeah no, yeah. I mean, well, one, one of the things that, because um, Tiger King is a documentary, you know, it does, uh, it unfortunately does, I think, get some things wrong. I think it does really portray, it does portray PETA maybe in a little bit too much of a positive or neutral light for my right. taste yeah um right. uh that, that that's maybe a conversation for for a little later but it, it mainly is a character study of uh you know a bunch of bizarre and flawed people mm. but one of the things that like they they let um because it's not it's not really a plot point they they just sort of let it go but at one point you know joe exotic says something to the effect of like um you know like well we're making these tigers you know tigers are in danger we gotta we gotta make these tigers have more cubs you know and like you're and it it kind of goes a little unchallenged you know his what he sees as a, a concert what what he you know he puts this veneer of um what we're doing is preserving the tigers by right. breeding them and you know uh selling these cubs and everything i mean like what do 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 people like think that that's what's what's going on in zoos so uh, i do think a lot of individuals again i speaking in the general public sense that a lot mm-hmm. of people have these certain ideas of a zoo being concrete metal mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. these animals sit in one place they don't get up they don't move um and they just stay as they are when again going back to an aza accredited zoo and some things that we can notice if you are an individual that's trying to kind of suss out what is and is not um good for the animals um think about animals in a way like this as well um do the animals have enrichment do they have things that they can interact with in the day um whether it's another animal of their species whether it's Something like uh, we we have um, AZA accredited zoos have different toys, sort of toys and puzzles, et cetera, for them to do in order to stimulate um, their minds and bodies. Another thing very simple that we don't think about um, are something as simple as putting pumpkins in the space. Hmm. Uh, I know some AZA accredited zoos with uh, let's use I'm going to use lions and tigers since we're on Tiger King uh, (laughs) will actually put in different spices and perfumes inside the enclosure space. And the reason why is because big cats 
are very scent driven where mm-hmm. they will find different scents in the wild and rub their bodies on them and scent mark in all these different ways to um enrich what they're looking for and find different things so some zoos may may sprinkle cinnamon or different perfumes again inside the space and uh, i've seen uh, some like lions and individual cats for example just it's it's their pride and joy to find that perfume <laughs> or that uh, oregano or whatever uh, scent is in there um also i know during the holiday season many az credit zoos will do christmas trees Oh, that's pine smart. scent and different things to sort of uh again what is this new smell or what is the smell i i only noticed a few or like last mm-hmm. year it's something new and enriching for them right. um the other right. thing to also consider is when you're at an aza credit zoo or any zoo in general mm-hmm. is think about the animal space is it mm-hmm. does it have um different uh different materials again different uh substrates for them to walk on like it would be different in the wild um Mm -hmm. also when you get the question why isn't this animal moving why isn't Mm -hmm. it doing anything we also have to think about an animal in its natural habitat when we think about ourselves are we running around our houses doing push-ups and jumping jacks or are we sitting on our couch on our phones right yeah Mm -hmm. And the same can be said for animals, where a lot of the time they are resting for large periods of time. They conserve energy because energy is an important resource. Mm. Us as human beings and as animals conserve energy without even realizing as we're uh, going on Instagram and TikTok. So it's important to kind of keep that in mind um, when we're talking about why isn't this animal Mm. running and Mm -hmm. jumping all day and doing all these dynamic things. Well, that's because not all animals do that all the time, whether on right, a right. basis or, or, or individual basis. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it it kind of does bring up this, um, and maybe this is part of it too. This this idea of of zoos being a place of research and learning versus a place for entertainment. And I think I, I wonder if you get like questions about that in terms of like maybe maybe conflicting ideas or or questions from from people regarding it because i like i know personally speaking like i definitely at one point thought of the okay zoos are you know good and then it's like well zoos are actually you know the animal prisons and it's the it's this you know this uh the iron bars and 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 concrete but then having learned over time that no it's actually not this and there's a lot of research happening here and a lot of important work going into this to make sure that animals have a good life in these places but then also that there is something to be learned from it. It's not just an entertainment value. That's maybe a a part of it to keep the to keep this interest in for some people who go, you know, to the zoo. So I I, I guess like even with like the Tiger King example and these these sort of really sketchy side road roadshow zoos that seem to use animals more for the sake of attraction than actual, you know, helping and helping them and helping us learn. You know, I wonder if that maybe maybe poses some of these issues at hand with how people look at zoos. I, I guess I'm just wondering your thoughts on that. Right, and I think many of these roadside zoos, circuses, Tiger King-esque facilities. SeaWorld. Um, yeah, SeaWorld too. Yeah. SeaWorld. Um, well, again, um, focusing on uh, Tiger King, the roadside zoos, et cetera, is that 
again, animals shouldn't really be on the move right, like that. Yeah. They shouldn't because again, one of these roadside zoos, you have these animals that a, a lion in this kind of small space moving place to place throughout the country. AZA accredited zoos are established locations. They're in one mm. area because transportation can be stressful on animal. For sure, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. there are there are necessary times where an animal will be transported to another AZA accredited zoo. And that's because obviously maybe it has a better space over there or a part of a breeding program, which I can actually dive into. Um, so one of the one of the things like you mentioned with Tiger King is that, yeah, we have to breed these tigers. We have to get the population numbers up. Um, and that's true that we do have to get the population numbers up on tigers. However, when you start to ask some deeper questions, if you're at a roadside zero or Tiger King esque place, you can always ask, OK, what do we what are you doing with these cubs? Where are they going specifically? What is the overall purpose of this place with the with the young and where are they going? For many of these roadside zoos and Tiger King-esque places, it's for cub petting opportunities where mm. you get to have a, a tiger cub or a lion cub in your arms and take a picture and it's a fun Instagrammable moment. AZA accredited zoos don't do that. You can certainly do something like a draft video experience or something that gets you closer to the animals, but to have something like a tiger or lion inside your arms, that's a red flag. Yeah, for that, sure. That is not what an AZA accredited zoo represents. Um, the AZA, by, by um, extension as well, in case anyone doesn't know, it's the Association of Zoos and Aquariums. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's what the acronym stands for. Um, and you can actually go again. I'm not I'm not to be clear. I'm not sponsored by these guys <laughs> or this organization. Uh, my, my thoughts are my own. So if you were to if you let's say you were in Montana, Florida, California, anywhere in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're thinking, I want to find an AZA accredited zoo. How do I do that? You can actually go on the website and it has the list of those that are AZA accredited. Oh, that's uh, great. But again, going back to that, the conservation effort of where these cubs are going what is the purpose for the young mm-hmm. to go and reflect on an aza credits you uh we're still on big cats so i want to use uh, i'm going to use the Amur leopard for example if you guys mm. uh, haven't haven't heard of this animal so we've heard of african leopards this is the Amur leopard the Amur leopard uh lives actually in eurasia oh. um around russia china and north korea uh, far different than what you may picture of the after leopard that lives yeah. uh, with it, it, that, that's a bit of that's a bit of a tough geography to get slated with <laughs> right right, right. <laughs> um and when we think of african leopards um they share their space with elephants lions cheetahs etc versus armor leopards actually share their space in again russia china north korea with mm. brown bears siberian tigers um deer etc and it's a much different landscape uh more forested mountain-esque uh very interesting but almer leopards as a whole are a subspecies of the common leopard that we know and love but the almer leopard currently is critically endangered Mm. with around 200 individuals left in the wild wow okay wow so because of that AZA accredited zoos have what is called the SSP or the Species Survival Plan, Species Survival Program. You can call it one or the other. The Species Survival Plan is meant to have these animals in human care to breed and and use for conservation efforts. These animals are staying within AZA accredited zoos. They are not going out to be pet for pictures and Instagram. They're not uh, going out to roadside zoos or anything like that. They are established within the AZA, and they are part of that program to keep numbers up. 
Unfortunately, mm -hmm. when you think of armored leopards in the wild, these are big cats, and many of the big cats have extended home ranges that they call their territory. Mm. When these individual animals that are in that area, only 200 left, when you have these animals finally meet, the greatest threat to them right now is genetic diversity. For when wow. these animals do finally meet up, you may be meeting up with your cousin, maybe meeting up with your sibling, maybe meeting up with your parent without fully realizing it. Gotcha. Mm. which then ends to inbreeding and many health defects, which negatively impacts the species as a whole. This is sort of uh, famously the, uh, the issue with a lot of conservation efforts uh, surrounding the Florida panther. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah, but going back to um, AZA credit zoos, yeah, yeah, sorry. We we, no, that's fine. Uh, we have armor leopards in human care, and they're part of this program. Now, a lot of times you may get the question of, when are they eventually going back to the wild? These animals have to go back to the wild eventually. And you're right. However, mm -hmm. there are some things to keep in mind. Not mm -hmm. only is genetic diversity a huge problem for armor leopards, it's also habitat loss for logging, mm -hmm. um, poaching of these animals. So even if AZA credit zoos magically had 100 armor leopards to send back to the mm -hmm. wild, it wouldn't necessarily be the greatest sentence for them because we still have these underlying issues of their habitat getting smaller and smaller and these animals being taken from the wild for whether the pet trade, their coats, black market, mm. and very other negative reasons. Right. Yeah, how so, much how much pull does the AZA have in uh North Korea? I I don't I don't <laughs> well, know what I don't know what their animal conservation programs right. are. Like. <laughs> um well I can't really speak on North Korea's um conservation efforts, but I do know that the Amur leopard can live in that general area. Either way, <laughs> um Again, it's it's with the global effort to make sure that these animals are doing well. And eventually, yes, we do want them in the wild. We do want them mm -hmm. at a stable population. But first, we do have to tackle the population issue firsthand, as well as the ecological issues in their natural home range as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, that's that's sort of the, the, the frustrating long game of a lot of conservation projects, of things that are not going to be sort of quickly remedied uh, as, as we try to, you know, uh, mm -hmm. re reintroduce a lot of those animals. You know, it's going to be generations of of working on these kinds of problems and i think people are uh uh not 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 knowing that full story not knowing that full uh this this sort of the this longer vision and and that perspective in that context it's um you know it's it's important for people to recognize that when they when they see an animal that's in the zoo and you know they could easily look at like oh well you just have that cuz it's rare when it should be out in the wild living its life and now it you know is like doomed to live in this in this zoo um but you know there's so many species that really have only survived because of the intervention of zoos and and conservation efforts and breeding programs and stuff and uh you know captivity has saved a lot of these animals and has uh, allowed uh, at least some of them to be returned to the wild and uh, you know to uh, to be reintroduced. Um, 
the the thing though is like with people without people knowing that context i was curious if either of you uh, were familiar with um a french documentary uh from 2010 called nanette about uh a kind of famous orangutan named nanette that's at the uh, paris zoo no i haven't actually watched that Yeah, i haven't seen it yeah yeah um I, I watched it for a class that was like all about animals and art history and a lot of the class focused on the human gaze on animals and one of the things that they sort of talk about are you know obviously orangutans are, are an animal that has you know suffered from hunting and deforestation and you know there's uh a lot of uh uh, efforts and captivity, you know, to to save them, and you know, there's there is also sort of a similar, you know, long game they're playing of you know trying to save those animals. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, Nanette, who is uh, I believe still alive, she would be, um, I guess she is now in her sixties, because in yeah. two thousand and ten, uh, I think she was like fifty. Um, you know, she she was sort of this uh, kind of kind of this famous orangutan just for having been uh, a a fixture of the uh, Parisian Zoo for so long. Um, but one of the things that's also interesting about orangutans is they kind of have those very um, stoic, expressionless faces, and because of that, visitors to the zoo project really on her. Um, you know, and it's sort of this interesting little microcosmic case study of of what of what humans are trying to sometimes do with animals which is to you know look at this face and try to scrutinize it and try to see what um they're feeling and in Nanette's case it's it's interesting again because you know it's it's a primate it's an ape it has uh you know all these things in common with us it looks somewhat similar to us but it's just expressionless and she's just sort of um you know laying there most of the day and there's you you uh it, it's an interesting documentary just because you only ever see her and then the rest is you are hearing people's reactions to seeing her and you know the people that think you know she's uh you know charming and silly the people that thinks that think she's sad and depressed the people that think she's just bored um and you know it's maybe it it, it's maybe not the place of that documentary like i don't know if they're trying to you know make a blanket statement about zoos but it does come off as you know this thing of no, no one is capable of knowing how nanette feels really um ultimately and that is you know clearly she has people that take care of her that give her everything she could want and need um but you're still sort of left like you know this this creature can't fully comprehend its its situation or can she you know Mm. what what it what when when you're looking when you're just looking at her you're kind of only just seeing yourself reflected back at you. It's you're, you're only going to see what your presumptions are about the place of a zoo, about encountering an animal like this, you know, an animal that was born in Borneo in the seventies and has lived most of her life in, in, in France. Right. 
Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I think too that brings up at least a thought in my mind with AZA accredited zoos is that a lot of the time you may also get the question of where did this animal come from? Did mm-hmm. it uh, take it from the wild, or where did it where did it mm-hmm. originate from? So many mm-hmm. animals that are in AZA accredited zoos are from other animals that came through the AZA. So we are mm-hmm. multi multi generational process of these animals being in human care and in the, mm-hmm. uh, the human space. So AZA accredited zoos. The only time when one may re, uh, have one come from the wild is if it's a rehabilitation animal. Mm-hmm. Um, and you actually see this quite often with birds, mm. um, whether it's a bald eagle or an owl or other animals such as that, because mm-hmm. many birds of prey, uh, vultures as well, unfortunately get um, stuck in fences, mm. run into windows, run mm-hmm. and get hit by cars, and are their wings or their their feet or something about them is unfortunately damaged and they are unable to go back to successfully hunt in the wild um if we were just to leave that animal out where it was we again we're leaving it to a bad sentence where it would ultimately perish from its wounds mm-hmm. right um where if we're able to take this animal in through an az credit zoo sanctuaries etc we again going back to that uh, phrase of giving new life mm. to an animal Mm-hmm. We are we are helping this creature, this life form, live a better life from its its last situation, right. which was definitely not favorable. Right. Uh, going also to another thing you had mentioned about PETA, um, I know many many um, organizations like PETA or animal rights groups may say animals deserve to be in the wild, and there's nowhere else they should be. They should be left to their own devices, sort of a almost Jurassic Park esque. Let life find a way. Um, <laughs> That's brutal. Or <laughs> more, more more curiously, in the uh, I haven't seen I, I I haven't seen I think the most recent Jurassic World movie, but I know right. like in the second Jurassic World movie, they take like a weird environmentalist take, and it's like <laughs> that. But the but we made them. The, the the humans made them. This is yeah. this is a weird. This is right. this is weird to have all of these signs that say they were here first. It's uh-huh. like it's like, huh? It's a, <laughs> okay, okay. Right, right. Um, but again, there you know, not even just uh, organiz- uh, animal rights organizations, but there's plenty of people. Again, I talking about the general mm-hmm. public that may say, why not leave all the animals alone to themselves in the wild and let things sort out themselves? Let life find a balance. Mm-hmm. when it all sounds good when we say that and it right. looked it may look good on paper however mm-hmm. there's still many things to consider we are currently in what is you know widely said as the sixth mass extinction on our planet mm-hmm. where right. unfortunately um, pollution human conflict habitat loss and climate change are having a dramatic effect on ecosystems around the world we had gotten many of these species in the negative situations that they are to where even if we magically let all these animals hands off handle it themselves they really couldn't right and, yeah, and the, the 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 idea of pristine wilderness that they can return to is almost it's almost a fiction yeah there's a lot of cases where those those places no longer really exist where they can thrive, unfortunately. Yeah, and a lot of that due to human intervention and problems that mm-hmm. come out of that. And I do think it's a bit of the 
I don't want to say irony because it's really not, but just like, you know, not thinking through the situation fully. And also forgetting how brutal the wild is and, mm-hmm. and the survival that it requires. Obviously, to go back to that sort of a situation, pre-industrial, pre-any sort of, you know, agrarian civilization, yeah, maybe you can make a case that it is for the best and that things could thrive. But it doesn't mean that, you know, things don't die and that it's not a struggle every day to survive. Um, and, and I think that that often gets forgotten um, due mm-hmm. to also just how we live today, which, you know, it, it's not really, it's a different type of struggle to survive. There's something that comes to mind with with humans interacting and intervening with animals, and it kind of reminds me of, like, you know, the first, like, when when, I forget the specific anthropologist or social scientist that was talking about this, but, like, where the, um, where, like, civilization starts is the mending of bones by another, like, by humans helping each other to heal their wounds so that they can still continue to walk. And not to put like a weird humanist approach to this, but I I do yeah, think yeah. that it's like there's something to not to, to trying. There's something very human about trying to help anything living mm. to go forward and not just to perish in the wild due to mm-hmm. either our own actions or even even just the course of nature itself. It's it's a there's a perseverance there that I think is really important. And, and maybe in looking at it that way, it opens up a different mm-hmm. picture to this as well. Yeah. You right. can see, you can see that, that human uh, impulse to want to heal, to want to try and mm-hmm. compensate. Yeah. You know, if, if, if we're able to, uh, it's, um, it, it it also sort of makes me think a bit about the uh, the John Berger essay, uh, Why Look mm, at Animals? Right. And, you know, that's coming out in the 70s. So, you know, Berger's not, I, I don't, I, I forget when he died, but, you know, he's not talking about contemporary zoos and contemporary standards. So we we kind of have to discount that a little bit and, and and locate it within the time period he was writing it. But one of the things that he talks about quite a lot is um, the the idea that when you encounter an animal, maybe in a zoo, uh, you as an adult, you may feel some kind of disappointment uh, when when you encounter it. Like it is not the creature it is not the thing that you built up in your head as a child, um, mm, you know, that, right. that fascinated you. And as a jaded adult, you sort of approach it and you begin to recognize it as a monument that the zoo has sort of established a monument to this lost wilderness um, all around the world. And, you know, that can kind of cut both ways. You know, you could see that as kind of a, a noble, um, a noble endeavor. Uh, I mean, in John Berger's case, I think he took it as a much more in a much more cynical route, which, mm-hmm. you know, he's he's entitled to. And, you know, again, based off the time period he's writing it, um, it's sort of in, in a 70s uh, era of conservation and, and environmentalism. But uh you it, it's it's an interesting thing to sort of reframe it that you know there is damage that has been done 
uh, it's maybe not all going to be irreparable, but we are doing this in the name of some grand ideal that we can maybe strive for. And so it is kind of interesting to think about zoo animals serving a monumental mm. purpose as well. I think that's that's incredibly impactful for us to have that perspective and to really note that in our minds. Um, for speaking to you guys directly, and again, as a conservationist, this is what I care about. This is what I care mm -hmm. to talk about and teach people about on the subject. Um, mm -hmm. To speaking again to you guys and to any listener listening to this, the way I would describe um, our situation right now is imagine a stack of Jenga blocks. A stack of Jenga blocks in your mind um, with every piece of every species, whether plant or animal, going extinct. Imagine taking out a block and another block and another block. Now, over time or after the fierce food blocks, it may not seem very significant. Mm -hmm. But as we continue to lose species by species, ecosystem by ecosystem, eventually we have this incredibly emaciated tower that is mm -hmm. teetering on one side of still functioning and the other of complete collapse. Mm -hmm. And all it takes is one more block for the entire ecosystem or entire space of the world to fall on itself. Mm -hmm. That is the situation with conservation. We do not want to get to the point where our tower falls, right. which is all the more important of why I do what I do I, I teach and I learn myself and to educate, again, researchers to the public about our planet and why it is so important for mm -hmm. us to care. Animals are integral to our own lives. Mm -hmm. When we are in kindergarten and preschool, we learn that E is for elephant and L is for lion, mm -hmm. all the way yeah. to mm -hmm. our, our mascots, whether we're in high school to college level. Um, all of these different things are advertisements, um, cereal boxes with animal mascots and all of these different parts, the zoo, museums, animals are part of us, especially for you guys as, as artists and people who care about history. Animals have been in cave painting, yeah. multiple different mm -hmm. types of mm -hmm. art um, from our pets like our dogs and cats to um, riding war elephants into battle and cavalry and all of our mon monumental um, human successes, yeah. animals are there. They're right yeah. beside us. Yeah. And we and it's all the more important to me to keep them there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that that is like also another point that that Berger sort of marks as like his um as as sort of his uh his yeah his marker of what industrialization uh had done. Uh, which was to remove animals from daily life uh, mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. Uh, and that there are these these fragmentary things, but in a lot of cases, you know, urban life removes you from a lot of other life forms. Yes, uh, true. And, 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 you know, can, can weaken that connection to some extent. But yeah, no, I mean, I, I, it, it's really, it's really wonderful to, you know, hear how passionate mm -hmm. you are about it. And it's, it feels, you know, it can, it, it, it feels good knowing that there's, there's people like you that, 
you know, want to make this their life's work, educating people about it, you know, and putting in an effort to uh, to conserve what's left and in sort of the hopes that we can heal, because that is, you know, what it's gone from, you know, from being a, like we were saying earlier, you know, sort of originating in the, the cabinet of curiosity uh, realm of prestige to now it is it's hope you know in 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 some small form that you know we can have this uh that that we that we can uh that we can rebuild with what we have i do think um it's i believe in a term called conservation optimism mm. where it is very easy for us to look at the current world and think mm -hmm. forests may be going down forests mm -hmm. are being cleared oceans are being polluted and it's very easy to see or easy to think about the world going in a very bad direction and there's no way to change it mm -hmm. when conservationist optimism looks at that and says okay let's think about our successes mm -hmm. let's let's work together to make a greater sense of change to reverse what we've caused and i think that overall is a much better way to look at conservation in the world than to yeah. be on this very somber note inside ourselves because i do think that when we have it on that somber note it makes us really it makes us give up yeah, yeah. but, when, yeah, it's, but it's, when it's it's fatalist exactly right yeah but i i believe with the human condition when we have that sense of hope we have something to hold on to uh, physically or mentally that allows us to be motivated mm, to do mm -hmm. good, to do better. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, I completely agree. And I'm, and I'm happy you bring that up too, because I think it's really important to remember that positive, that, you know, that mm -hmm. positive idea that we, you know, we could, we can change things around. There can be mm -hmm. this turn. It's, um, it, it's something I think that needs to be challenged, not in an aggressive way, but just in a critical right. thinking way. And I had a conversation with a friend of mine it was a part of a residency I was doing, an artist residency, um, and we were discussing like vi nothing to do with animals, but we were discussing violence in general. And I said something where I was like, "Well, you know, of course, like violence will never go away." And she said to me, "Well, why not?" And I had to think about that for a moment because it's true. Well, well, why not? Is it possible? Maybe, right? That it's not. If you think of things always in the negative, and it's always that fatalistic approach of, well, this is the way it is, and nothing will ever change. Then nothing will ever change. It will always stay the same. It's, it's why you know the idea of okay, climate change is happening. Well, we all have to just accept our fate and move on. Is is terrible. It's a terrible idea. That that that's it. That's all we can do. Of course, it's depressing and it's very stressful, and it causes much anxiety for, I would say, all of us living here. <laughs> but there are ways out. There is, it's a lot of work and it's a lot of determination, but it can be done. I just finished reading um, the A Psalm for the Wild Built by Becky Chambers, which is a very good book and I recommend everybody read it. But it has this similar approach that you're saying, Christian, about like, you know, hu humanity and essentially recognizing the, the error of its ways and adjusting and through conservative efforts actually through or through conservation efforts not conservative efforts oh, uh, <laughs> absolutely <right. laughs> but um, yeah through, through, no comment on that one <laughs> through conservation efforts moving it in a different direction and, and going way farther into the future and and i think it's a really it's a 
it is an important note to to have and to to remember as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, th- that's uh, I'm I'm also excited to read that book. It's very uh, good. <laughs> I have I have my copy. I'll, good, good, good. I, I'm I'm ready for something uh science fiction but optimistic yes it's uh in my life it's going in the ucm Um, uh the reading list that i'm forming yes yes you know um along with our watch list yeah check out theodore rex starring whoopi goldberg (laughs) (laughs) um there's a a room that is in the boston museum of science that uh i have been uh that I have been informed about. I have not visited it yet, but I I think I'm going to uh, next time I get into that museum. But there's this space called the Colby Trophy Room, and it was uh, a uh, it's basically this recreation of uh, this guy's study. Um, hmm. uh, uh, in 1965, uh, they, they sort of got their hands on this guy's collection, uh, Colonel Francis T. Colby, and so now, hence the the, the Colby Trophy Room, ah. and it is a fascinating room to look at because here it is, sort of tucked away in the Museum of Science, is this relic of, you know, what the origins of uh, naturalism used to be that like that this was what the naturalist study looks like. And it's like, you know, we look in, at it now and we're like slightly horrified. It's like, <laughs> Oh God, there's rhinoceros heads on the yeah, wall Jesus. and all of these, all of these animals skins, uh, you know, leopards and uh, all kinds of animals that, uh, you know, now we think of as very rare and precious, but, you know, obviously he also thought they were precious. He just also thought that they should be on his wall, mounted on his wall. You right. know? Um, and it's a fascinating room to have sort of juxtaposed in the modern museum. And I think there is, you know, maybe a little bit of hand wringing about keeping it on display, considering its content and some of the other artifacts in the collection. But it itself is sort of a fascinating relic of how far we've come with conservation and our uh relationship with the environment and with the world around us you know where um science has gone from being you know sort of a hobby of the of the elite to this um this you know not perfect but certainly more accessible tool for uh mm. that that's that's helping us uh rectify so many of our problems um and you know i've also been told like it's also one of these weird old boston museum conventions too where like they they left it as kind of like this endowment that like they have to keep it there uh one of my friends even told me that it is stipulated in the will that a bunch of people have to go into it once a year and toast Colonel Colby, uh, which huh. is extremely weird. Yeah. But I guess there's some lawyer that's still on retainer that, uh, you know, is like, <laughs> I, it, is like standing in the corner, like making sure that right. you all toast 
this lawyer this lawyer almost makes me think he's like a descendant of the lawyer from jurassic park (laughs) did he have kids before he was eaten by the t-rex i i don't know but based off description i'm kind of catching some type of vibe Mm, like that yeah 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 but it is um it is a fascinating kind of relic and i mean it is one of those things like the um like the gardener museum where you know it's stipulated you know this is left to the people but you cannot change it um what a bizarre concept well, I think, yeah i think picking picking back off that too i yeah. think it's it's what we can learn from that mm-hmm. is many native peoples and mm-hmm. those before you know full industrial civilization is we very much had a connection to nature we were a part of nature yeah and it's it's processes and ways of moving and changing but there came this sort of industrial change where we we made this separation between ourselves and nature. Mm-hmm. We were very much distant. Mm-hmm. Or we made this sort of change where it was us versus nature. We mm-hmm. battled, yeah. the, you know, phrases like we battled the elements or yeah. um, brave out into the wilderness. Mm-hmm. And it is a very interesting change. And I think that place you're talking about, Zan, really is really solidifies that uh, that notion of the time mm-hmm. where i think now our sort of shift is kind of returning back to nature we're not separated from nature and we're not fighting nature or at least we shouldn't mm-hmm. we right. are a part of this entire world and ecosystem yeah. as a whole we all have a, a place in it um and because of which we need to connect back to those roots which i think is incredibly mm-hmm. important if we're going to help other species that mm-hmm. shared this space with us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I completely mm-hmm. Yeah, agree. no, I mean that that is that that really is my philosophy, you know, until I'm being swarmed by mosquitoes. <laughs> um I, I don't like mosquitoes. That is so yeah, yeah, oh yeah, my god, yeah, I completely yeah, fuck agree. Them. Um oh but god. yeah, I mean I that that's even kind of like to to to, to even go back, like that's even what I I think is so fascinating even about using the beetles uh, yeah. to help clean the skeletons and stuff, you know, the, the sort of a collaborative, collaborative effort, you know? Um, right. And uh, yeah, we, we got through that without making a joke about the beetles. Um, oh man. It's never too late. Zach. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I helped clean this elephant bone. Right. Did you name them? Uh, you know, I almost said that I almost said Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John instead of <laughs> John and Rico. Oh my God! You guys, felt... you guys were to, you guys were distracted by how uh, how well developed their union is. Yeah, I know. Yes, I was more yes. into the Beatle politics than I was. I, I wanted, you know, I wanted to think about the union thing in terms again of the, um, you know, the auditor of going around the zoos, making sure everything's on the up and up. You know, like right. it's like, have, have you talked to the Python union? <laughs> right. <laughs> right gotta make sure everything's in order right oh my yeah. gosh yeah yeah oh wow um yeah this has been yeah. this has been wonderful to to talk about and to have you on like i said it is great having uh people on that know what they're talking about yeah and uh and we're <laughs> glad that we could share that with um our museum audience today we always appreciate uh, mm. our guests stopping by here um I guess, uh, Christian, do you have, uh, uh, before people leave, do you have anything uh, that you have going on that you would like people to know about? 
Yeah, so you guys had mentioned that uh, this episode may be out sometime in February. Um, I actually have an event that's coming up in February. Um, without going into too many details, um, as we've all talked about animals and conservation, I actually talked about paleontology as well. Mm. So, ah. um, again, without going into too much detail, it is still a surprise. Um, this February, I do have an event coming up that's paleo-adjacent, paleo-related. Um, it's going to be very exciting. Um, I have a friend of mine that's a paleo artist by the name of Julio Lacerda. Um, if anyone is kind of familiar with paleontology and specifically YouTube, um, the YouTube channel PBS Eons, uh, that is where he's been a very prolific artist. Um, again, a good friend of mine, we're working together on something that's taken up much of our 2021 and will finally be revealed in 2022. Nice. Again, without mm -hmm. spoiling anything. Um, I'm very excited about it, and I know if you are, if you love prehistory and you love paleontology and some dinosaurs, you're going to have a good time. Ooh, <laughs> exciting. Um, another yes. thing is later on this year, um, talking about conservation, um, I actually will be doing, in the month of July, a full conservation event um, for a species, the African forest elephant, um, Loxodonta cyclotus. Um, when you think of elephants today, you may usually think of the regular African savanna elephant, very large, big ears, and the Asian elephant, which is much smaller with the shorter ears. But the African forest elephant lives in Africa, in West and Central um, Africa, and is critically endangered currently. Mm. Um, so because of which, I will be doing an event uh, kind of talking about the animal, what we can learn from it, its conservation, how we can support this species. So if there's two big things to look forward to, it's uh, my event coming up in February about some paleontology stuff and dinosaurs and my July event for conservation for the African forest elephant. Mm -hmm. Cool. Wow, that is extremely exciting. Uh, yes, please, everybody go check that out. Um, do you have any uh, social media so that people can keep up with uh, all this stuff? I do. So if you want to find me on Instagram and TikTok, I am Crikey It's Christian. Um, it is uh, a name that I had picked um, as, uh, you know, if you don't actually know, Crikey is a defined word. Oh. And uh, I believe as far as I remember, it is a term used for excitement or happiness. And um, Steve Irwin was very much an inspiration mm. for me and made mm -hmm. me want to consume conservation and be the man that I am today. So because right, of which... Right. Um, it's both a way of saying my happiness and the excitement I have for what I love and my passion, mm -hmm. but also brings homage to my inspiration that got me to where I am today. So you can find yeah. me at, at Crikey's Christian, um, C-R-I-K-E-Y-I-T-S-C-H-R-I-S-T-I-A-N on Instagram and TikTok. On Twitter, there is a character limit, so that's going to be a little limited. <laughs> It is instead C-R-K-Y-I-T-S-C-H-R-S-T-I-A-N. You know when you guys, when you see people with a license plate and they're trying to fit whatever <laughs> right, name right, right. characters, that's how I feel about my Twitter handle. Gotcha. <laughs> oh, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's, um, th there, there's been a photo going around recently of uh, a, a woman who thought she was spelling out mama bear uh, oh, with her, no. uh with her <laughs> um her vanity plate and i think it's like m for m bear oh i just saw one <laughs> oh. i saw one yeah, leaving yeah. work recently that said yeah i ke 
K-E-H, with a bunch of spaces in between of those two letters, or those mm. letters. There I don't was understand. Someone, there was someone, I remember, I'll never forget this, on my drive to school, uh, someone that had the vanity plate Jigpuff. Okay, like Jigglypuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Jigpuff. <laughs> Uh, yeah, um, yeah, I, I will also throw this out there, because obviously, also a, a huge Steve Irwin fan, you know, mm, same, same. uh, he died, like, right after I gave a book report on him, and <laughs> Michael Crichton. Whoa. Um, uh, yeah, that was weird, and oh middle school God. was weird. Um, but I also believe, uh, he sort of adopted Crikey, uh, I had always heard it was partially because he couldn't say Christ on TV. Like he couldn't, um, <laughs> he couldn't take the Lord's name in vain. And if you, it was basically like a kind of a, it was his way of being able to say, oh, Christ, kill me, you know, but not, you know, say that in front of the kids. <laughs> not for the children. Yeah. Oh my God. That's interesting. Yeah. Huh. But yeah, obviously RIP Steve Irwin. Yes. Yes. Um, True legend. But yeah, no, that's great. People can find uh, Craig Eats Christian. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, Joe, what mm. do the people need to know about you? Where can people find you? What are you up to? Well, the people can find me at, at Josemino Art on Instagram, and you can also go to my website, JoseminoArt.com, that I never plug on here, and I probably should do that more, uh, <laughs> where you can like contextualize all the things I talk about. Um, mm -hmm. really not too much going on. A lot of stuff that's like behind the scenes that will eventually be revealed in 2022. But mm -hmm. I do have an exhibition that should be happening very, very soon at, uh, the Herder Gallery and the University of Massachusetts Amherst. So if you're in that area, go check it out. I have a lot of my artworks on display, uh, there in, in this artistic research exhibition. So I'm really excited about that. Um, but that's pretty much it for the moment. How about you, Zan? Um, I am, uh, very, very engulfed, uh, trying with, <laughs> trying to get ready for my, mm. uh, thesis show in May, but that is coming. Very excited. I believe it's been moved a week out, so it's actually going to be a longer show oh. starting, um, May 23rd, I believe. Uh, but then it's going to be up for 11 days. So it got pushed out a little bit, but now it is going to be longer. Um, okay. But that is what is on the horizon for me. You can go see in some of my work right now uh, at the Studio Public House in St. Petersburg, Florida. I'm part of the show In Bloom. Made some artwork specifically for this show. So go check it out. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, obviously, you know, uh, be on the lookout for our uh, museum vanity plates that say <laughs> JC is my co-pilot. The JC obviously standing for Joe. Of course, Sino. of course, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna get that made. That's a great. I'm gonna, that's a great idea. <laughs> Go pick one up. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> Thanks to everybody for coming. Thank you so much to Christian for being on the show. Thanks, thanks so much. Um, and yeah, thank you for everyone joining us today. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Uncanny Museum. Uh, you can find us uh, at Uncanny County Museum on Instagram. You can find me and my artwork at Xanosaurus on Instagram and uh, Zanford E. Man on TikTok. Uh, and from the Uncanny County Museum, I have been Zan Peters. And I've been Joe Semino. Hi, Christian Flores. Hi. Hi.